Well, uh, if I may begin in our own ancient language, and I do so in honour of all the suppressed languages of the world through history. So, Kudinchos and Downer and Firkin Folsha, Dara Ruiv Galera, Sakhtan, Sakhtan Operator Shul, Agrius Grimgokrog, Spanak, and a kind of maker Shulisne, Lehante, Atolichia, Firkin Folsha, Gutchok, and Orisanukron. May I just say what a very great pleasure it gives me as President of Ireland, on behalf of my own behalf and behalf of Sabine and all those working with me, uh, to welcome all of you, Excellencies, uh, into the home of the President of Ireland. Our permanent representatives to the United Nations who are engaged in what surely must be acknowledged as the core fundamental value of the United Nations, peacebuilding and peacekeeping activities. How could you be but most welcome here? I think that you are all the more welcome, as I know that you are working for peace building, peace achievement, peace sustenance, in times when the international atmosphere is so difficult, when multilateralism is under strain uh, itself, and not in an accidental way, but in a sustained way. And when there is, if you like, such a great challenge to try and even achieve the most, the smallest space for the long thinking that can achieve an enduring balance between the needs of people, economy, peace and ecological capacity. At times like this, I think we must remind ourselves of the high moments, those high moments of 2015 when people of all ages, cultures around the world uh, drew a great sharp breath of relief at who had acknowledged the consequences of climate change and the importance of sustainability. And in the international community around the world, young people interested in futures and diplomacy were saying this is an opportunity now to go forward. But how far we have come back since 2015. And we really have come back because of, of course, uh, the irresponsible hubris of some of those uh, who have abused power in the past. And therefore it gets all the greater importance to the nations of the world with small populations in particular to say it is the view of the people world that must prevail rather than the view of those who have abused its resources. That you have come to Ireland to discuss areas of common interest in relation to these activities, including conflict resolution, is so important because a peaceful and just world is something that in relation to all of our different codes of uh, jurisprudence that exist in the world from the time of the comb of Hammurabi on, is that we must continue to work for peace. I think it must strike all of us as participants in humanitarian action about what a great... Every now and again, uh, one philosophically has to remind oneself not to fall into a despair and how one fails, as Beckett would put it again and again, uh, how it is that we now have on this planet such an incredible capacity for creativity, innovation and connection, the application of science and technology, and we continue to report a great failure in relation to meeting the great needs of the world. How, in fact, these opportunities and it does have something to those who own and control them are being turned not to the promotion and preservation of peace, but to the pursuit and prosecution of war. 
The sources of conflict are never static. They draw new circumstances, many created as by our greed and our carelessness. For our example, our assumptions as to infinite resources for the satisfaction of insatiable wants of a minority of our people who feel under no obligation to reflect on the consequences of their consumption practices. I think as well the moment we not only face a threat of peace, but to existence itself. The recent reports from the scientific body of the United Nations surely now at this stage have surfaced the deepest warnings that flow from three intersecting crises. Climate in relation to the sheer unsustainability of economic practice, deeply unequal consumption, and all too often I was speaking here in this very room yesterday, often layered on a, another great failure that we had, our failure to end violence against women. I spoke on the International Day of, against, and I really speak about this as well, and I, I want to repeat again and again, and it's such an international body, and I say it as a, as a, as a sociologist, there can never be a cultural justification or a traditional justification that stands between a woman, a girl, and her right to defend herself. And that nonsense has to stop. I think as well, uh, very often in relation to children, environment, and nature, we've accepted sometimes that our situation is inevitable. Perhaps the great failure in diplomacy over the last three or four uh, decades has been its surrender to versions of inevitability that offered singular forms of economy globally that brought disaster in so many different places. And I think the young, in many, many cases, have seen through the paucity of that intellectual exercise. Peacemakers now have to engage not only with change, but with, as I said, these three interacting crises, and in that task, countries with smaller populations and less hubris offer so much more possibilities together. And of course, that's in the background of the thinking of Ireland's candidature for membership of the Security Council. It remains clear to which any reading of modern history suggests that the outbreak and recurrence of conflict and security threats can only be prevented by addressing the root causes. And this demands political imagination and moral courage, independent research, financial commitment, and unstinting determination. It also demands the debate on our path forward must not be allowed to be distorted or even determined at any stage by those with vested interest in the arms race. One of the most sinister, dangerous contradictions of our time is in relation to the abuse of language, and you will be discussing it tomorrow, around such words such as security. Some of the most active uh, things that are taking place at the present time in North Africa are in fact is military expenditure and the new military surveillance expenditure, which is making a fortune out of in fact the elaboration and exaggeration of fear. So in the name often, very often, of those who think that they are within the discourse of security, it is not a neutral discourse. It is, in fact, the shell for a whole series of new and sinister developments in relation to the military-industrial complex. I believe that we must all collectively, individually, have the courage now to ask, how is it that we come to lose the discourse of peace to the discourse of fear? And there again is in relation to specifically in relation to secure. 
you make the people fearful first and then, in fact, actually you sell them product. And should you not, in fact, actually look at what was the basis of fear in the beginning and its roots in relation to racism, attitudes to migration, language, and this is, of course, in relation to diplomacy. How the international security industry, as I have said, now the most active partner in North Africa and parts of North Africa, has come to occupy a space that should have been filled by those seeking to fill the needs of sufficiency in food, shelter, education and cooperation. And indeed how we have come to accept the allocation of ecology, society and yes even peace to such a narrow and limited version of economy, a chronically imbalanced approach that has served us so badly and with such destructive consequences. So we must combine our efforts to achieve the alternative. I have called it the widespread adoption of a new paradigm of sustained peace, development, sustainability and responsibility. In fact, I have said in many, many cases, one of the things facing philosophers philosophically at this present time is to have the courage to face the contradiction of how language can be stolen from us. For example, sustainability after 1992 in the Rio conference, equally in relation to environmental issues, green issues and so forth, and they suddenly belong to the adversary rather than to those who would have in fact brought them somewhere else. I recently addressed an international conference here in Dublin on the 70th anniversary of the Geneva Conventions, which is of course regarded as the cornerstone of modern international humanitarian law, and recognised as the most important treaty, set of treaties governing the protection of people in armed conflicts. The conventions are responsible in their earliest forms for the establishment of humanitarian agency that we now know, for example, as the International Red Cross, and they remain solid foundations on which to establish new initiatives to deal <coughs> with current circumstances. I think what ties all of these, your work together, the Red Cross Geneva Conventions, is in fact a respect uh, I, I think, for you know, respect for the inherent dignity of the human being and also of the possibility in relation to the achievement of diplomacy of transcendent principles that can be shared. Things are changing. We know now that the average length of a humanitarian crisis is nine years. That's according to the UN Office for the Coordination of Humanitarian Affairs. It was previously five years ago. The average length was 5.2 years. So conflicts are lasting longer. And the United Nations also tells us that one in 70 people worldwide is caught up in a humanitarian crisis. That's 132 million people globally across 42 countries, highlighting the growing scale of the challenge. It is time that the people of the world supported their United Nations, took it back and enabled it to respond to facts like this. More people are being displaced by conflict. The very same report, so the number of forcibly displaced people rose from 59.5 million in 2014 to 68.5 million uh, two years ago. Crises exacerbate, of course, gender inequalities. I have spoken already about, uh, earlier this week about violence against women, but girls in conflict settings are two and a half times more likely to be missing school than boys. In just two years, between 2015 and 17, the number of people experiencing crisis-level food insecurity or worse increased from 80 million to 124 million people. Food insecurity will remain a major concern, particularly in areas affected by conflict and climate-related hazards. 
And we must really look and actually at what, how seriously we have taken meeting the food needs and sufficiency needs of the countries where the greatest expansions in population are taking place. I do say as a footnote to what I have seen here, as a president, head of state of a European Union member state, how useful it would be if we just had a, maybe a week of quiet reflection sometime for all of the countries of Europe to actually pause and in silence think of how they had treated continents that were adjacent to them, such as the continent of Africa. Then draw a deep breath and try and move forward to the future. But the idea that we will repeat, fix up old models that are broken, ask these country, this continent of the young, for example, to repeat our mistakes, that its older people should in fact actually seek to be like us who haven't brought, brought the planet to the point of catastrophic destruction. We must gear ourselves to have the courage to allow the space for paradigm change. The majority of humanitarian needs are occurring in long-lasting crisis in which there's been limited progress in addressing what I call the root causes. On that, I do want to say you will have a proliferation at times of surplus of what is called the humanitarian response. Humanitarian response is urgent. It is what saves lives in the short term. But it can become a mask for, if you like, avoiding the structural changes that are necessary. And when it is used as a mask and so forth, it is used as a mask often by the most powerful, who, while in fact the structural changes are neglected intellectually, scholarly, policy and in diplomacy, one can get on with the idea of having a humanitarian rhetoric. When I was speaking earlier in many, many cases of those who are selling, let us say, uh, different kinds of equipment for looking at body heat and so forth, addressing issues of migrant movements in Africa, they're coming down with humanitarian language. It is the way it works, and that is why it is very important to have a very strong element of realism in one's diplomacy. I think in 2017, uh, I think I want to thank all of you for what you've been doing. You, and you're working away in these difficult circumstances, have been instrumental, however difficult it takes, in making the world that little bit safer, more secure. But I also want to thank uh, all the humanitarian work that, that you facilitate. Over 30 million people, over 80,000 people every day were forced to leave their homes as they fled from violence, conflict and disaster. And I, I think, uh, too, uh, what is uh, very important, as we link, wrestle with these interlinked challenges in science, climate, economy and society, we must do more to support and invest in the interlinked solutions of peace, justice, human rights and development, and strive to build a culture of peace, not an easy task. For example, I've been speaking already, and it makes people uncomfortable sometimes when I speak about it, about how one thinks we can continue with existing relationships of interconnection, be it in relation to trade. Can you continue with unfair trade? Can you continue with unfair debt? And can you continue with unfair relations in relation to participation and decision-making and still pretend to be in favour of the sustainable development goals, respond to climate change and be a humanitarian? This is where the contradictions come in, and it is the moral duty of all of us who are working in the public sphere to continually address these contradictions and to look for consistencies and to ask that there be a connection 
and to say in many cases, if you want to do what you've said you would do in New York or in Paris, you will have to give way in trade, and you will have to give way equally in relation to unsustainable, immoral and amoral debt structures, and you will also have to say, go back to your New York office and say, why is it that the international institutions, IMF and World Bank and others, are not doing what the Charter of the UN said? Why is it, in fact, actually that you are living with about a 30% of a globalised, financialised economy that you pay tribute to, but which is, in fact, wrecking the world in relation to its consequences on countries seeking to develop, as I have said to the, His Excellency, the President of the General Assembly, whom I so support, with African agency. There must be agency, therefore, that those people, be it girls choosing, for example, to be safe, must have agency, economies with agency, continents with agency, regional organisations with agency. That is where we have to go. I think for many of the victims of con contemporary conflict, the great injustice of being deprived of those most basic of human needs, shelter, security, a sense of belonging, is a lived and daily reality. They are arriving on foreign shores, fleeing war and persecution. Every I apologise for having been speaking so length, slightly longer, but I've been struck even today looking back over my notes about all these issues I have mentioned about security and the militarisation have been imported into the migration conflict and how, in fact, actually now migrants are being used as the flotsam and jetsam of this notion, with, in fact, actually even international agency money rewarding people for capturing uh, migrants and then effectively selling them again and then getting rewarded several times, which is a complete abuse in relation to and a contradiction. To be doing something that contradicts your moral purpose is, in fact, worse than not doing anything at all. I think that those who arrive in foreign shores fleeing war and persecution, those whose home and land have been illegally taken from them, or who live under the constitutional fear of persecution, or who have been subjected to a climate change that they are not the main agents in, theirs are rendered viceless, powerless, their lives ruptured, their autonomy is confiscated. And that is a subject, of course, about which people such as Hannah Arendt wrote. The Universal Declaration of Human Rights has affirmed that the recognition of the inherent dignity or the equal and inalienable rights of all members of the human family is the foundation of freedom, justice and in the world. So if we are to construct such a world, uh, I believe this question of agency is going to be very, very important. It is not that people are waiting for forms of exploitative economy to arrive on their shores or versions of intercultural relations. It is that they are more than capable and drawing on that extraordinary number, I open in, in, in the Irish language, which we were forbidden to speak in this country for a period when we were forced to adopt another language. But I meant what I said about, oh, not just of the thousands of suppressed languages in the continents of the world, but when I lived, when I visited and so forth, Think of all the hundreds and forms of conflict resolution that were in existence in cultures that were suppressed. People had ways of calculating fairness. 
The notion of justice was not invented in the world. It is not a creature of the European Western Enlightenment. There were concepts of the just man among the Barazzi. Anyone who wanted to look at these cultures and notions, people knew how to live together. People knew how to solve problems and so forth. All that richness is available to us if in the new paradigm that we're developing, we in fact allow agency to the peoples of the world, rather than to those who have corrupted the agencies of the world by their abuse of power. I do want to wish all of your, your consideration here. Ireland is very proud of, for example, our consistent uh, involvement in peacekeeping. In this country, if you probably will go to families, they're able to tell you more about the Middle East for the very simple reason that there's some member of their family or a neighbour who has served there. We have been serving now for 40 years in peacekeeping forces. We have at the moment, I think, the six, there are more than 600 Irish Defence Forces personnel on UN peacekeeping motions at the moment. And 370 women and men in the Lebanon, for example. And we're represented, I think, in seven of the United Nations, 14 peacekeeping uh, operations. As President of Ireland, to those families, to those people who serve, and to all of those, and to all of you who also are providing peacekeeping forces around the world, and those of who are receiving them in your communities, uh, I thank you. And I know that it is all the more important because now, for example, in our deployment, two-thirds are in what are regarded as high-risk uh, uh, high environments. Another evolution we've had in our thinking as well has been a greater involvement, both in terms of our own troops and also in relation to our advocacy for the role of women in relation to peacekeeping. It is not just actually recognising women as the principal carriers of the heart of war and conflict, but as the sources of wisdom for post-construction, for peacekeeping afterwards, which is in incredibly important. A whole, again, no more than the suppressed <coughs> notions of jurisprudence, all that we lost by not allowing women to participate in relation to their richness of mediation, humanitarian assistance, and insights into forms of economy. I think finally, therefore, we as a community, as shared custodians of this art, we must all now together support multilateralism, support holistic solutions. We must come together to demand accountability and transparency at the United Nations and the European Union and the African Union and the World Bank and many other bodies. I've said as well, Secretary General Gutierrez recently combined the words development and security uh, together in a, a recent speech. When I saw it, I was so strongly supportive, and then I also found myself recoiling somewhat. What is it, for example, if in fact actually all the cohorts who have been disseminating fear have succeeded, and they suggest now we should simply start protecting ourselves at any cost? It is a very, very sad day in the European Union that the European Union sees its future as one that it must defend itself against what? Other human beings on this planet. Equally in relation to the notion as well as this is that somehow or another that the arrival of people from different backgrounds and somewhere uh, th could, it, it threatens uh, stability in some way. We must be very careful of this word security. The security that is important is security from global hunger, security from transferable disease, security from being excluded from your school, security from being excluded from health, security from being able to walk and have a, a free opinion. That is security. 
Security, therefore, should not be just the tag headline which is being advertised now and which is absorbing some very well-meaning people into the rhetoric that somehow or another it is that which should displace development and that which should displace uh, different kinds of balances. I argue for a paradigm shift in relation to the structures for precisely that reason. Ireland remains deeply committed to the multilateral order. I am so proud of our Irish diplomats abroad who consistently make the case against the dissemination of weapons as they have it since the days that Ireland arrived at the United Nations. I hope that when Ireland is successful in relation to securing a rotating membership of the Security Council, that it will, President of the General Assembly, take all your values and the values that are there, the expression not just of the mind of the world but of the heart of the world, to the Security Council, and that it will never lack the courage to confront those who would abuse those principles. Mila Buikas, thank you all very much. Thank you.